Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Today we talk trade. There's daily developments on the Trump administration trade policy. We'll get a grip on the latest with steel, NAFTA, and of course, sorghum. It's been five years since the Rana Plaza disaster. We'll discuss ongoing efforts to improve conditions in the garment industry, and we hear about rug makers in Pakistan that earn a fair wage. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe gets a crack at sorting out the Trump administration's trade policy. He's visiting the Mar-a-Lago resort for two days of meetings. We're going to talk trade now with Phil Levy. He is assistant. He's a senior fellow on the global economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. He's been writing up a storm in Forbes about NAFTA and other places. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Uh, what are Shinzo Abe's problems here? He's got, he's got uh, Donald Trump wants to have a bilateral deal with Japan. He also now wants to get back in the TPP. Uh, Abe sits down with him and says what? He says, I thought we were friends. What are you doing to me? <laughs> I, I think he, he was an early uh, sort of supplicant for Donald Trump. He came over. He thought he had a good relationship. The thing that's really struck the Japanese very hard were the national security tariffs on steel because Japan is a top 10 supplier of steel imports to the United States. They make very high-quality steel. The U.S. issued exclusions to lots of other countries that were close allies and trading partners. They did not issue an exclusion to Japan and the Japanese took this as a very big slap in the face and Shinzo Abe packed his bags for Florida. Does he want to get one now? Oh, he'd love to have an exclusion right now. Um, there's – you know, some people have speculated that it's exactly being used as leverage to try and make the Japanese start to do a bilateral trade deal with the US. They have been notably reluctant to do that. Why are they reluctant to be in a bilateral trade relationship with the U.S.? They have their eyes open. They watch what it is to do a trade deal with the Trump administration. So they watch all of the developments in NAFTA. They look back at the experience of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, where they gave until it hurt, essentially. They opened up sectors that they had vowed never to open up. And then they hear President Trump say, I want all that and more. And I want to give you less. That doesn't sound very appealing to them. They went through five years of TPP negotiations with the U.S., with the Obama administration, and then they got told we're not, you know, they got left at the altar. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it was a huge political deal in Japan. If you looked at sort of a bookstore in Tokyo, I'm told by people who read Japanese, you'd have sort of shelves of what do we do about the TPP as this was going on. So it was a major political deal. They committed to openness. Um, of course, from the U.S. perspective, access to the Japanese Japanese market was the real prize for American farmers, American producers, and they brought themselves to do this after being very reluctant for decades, and then the U.S. walks away. I was reading about – I mean the trade deficit always seems to be an issue with the Trump administration. Mm. And our trade deficit on cars with Japan is so vast, it almost seems 
impossible to make it up or even make a dent in the trade deficit. Uh, I noticed that Fiat was having some success importing cars into Japan because they have windows that fold up small and you can get, you know, get into parking spaces and tight spots and things. There, there's a unique set of demands that uh, the Japanese say the U.S. don't meet when they bring their cars to Japan. Yeah, that's right. And we've seen that in Japan and we've seen that in Korea, that these are sort of different markets. And some of the things that the traditional American automakers have been particularly good at, building big SUVs, for example, just are not as appealing in these other countries. The good news, though, is you say it seems nearly impossible to bridge the the deficit in auto trade. The good news is we don't need to unless you work for the Trump administration because there's no particular economic reason why you need to have either good by good or country by country balance in your trade flows. Explain that because it seems like a trade deficit's a trade deficit. Well, it it is overall. If you look at what a country does, so for the U.S., if you take the whole nation's exports and the whole nation's imports, that's a trade deficit. It does not say we're losing at trade. What it says is – and this takes a little uh, economics – but it, it says we're borrowing from the rest of the world. Um, and it's the flip side of, uh, of that sort of borrowing and the difference between savings and investment. On a bilateral basis, if you want to take any particular country or certainly if you want to take any particular good like cars, we don't even expect there to be a balance between countries. Countries specialize. You export one thing, you import another and you'll see an imbalance in each. Now, uh, before we get away from Shinzo Abe, um, he is slightly worried about the U.S. talking security and trade at the same time here at this summit. Yeah, I think um, – that the well, I think that Japan has been a security partner of the U.S. Um, they've they're they're trying to sort of make sure that that status is cemented. They, they live in a tricky part of the world where you've got North Korea right nearby. The Japanese are very suspicious of the Chinese, and it matters a lot to them that they have a solid alliance with the U.S. The U.S. is going into this North Korea negotiation, and Japan's not at the table, and they don't want the U.S. to uh, give on medium-range missiles and, you know, and, and the Trump administration, they're worried, is going to give on medium-range missiles and, uh, and in, in exchange for a bilateral trade deal or something. That's right. I think there's, there are a lot of subtleties to the dealings with North Korea and the Japanese are very concerned that the, U, that the Trump administration may not catch all of those subtleties and might abruptly do something which would be harmful to them. And you've heard statements where they say, we worry about missiles that could strike the United States. If you're sitting in Tokyo, um, those are not the only missiles you worry about. Let's swing over to China. And there's been interesting developments. They've given a little bit on electric cars and slapped a big tariff on sorghum, which I don't know if people know much about sorghum. It's a kind of a cross between molasses and honey. Yeah. And they make some kind of liquor out of it and import a billion dollars worth of it, which stunned me. Right. And it's also uh, something they give to livestock. It's um, an unusual product around here. But they – that's pretty hard hitting in the industrial belt. Yeah, that's right. Well, and this I mean, is the farming the, the, the belt, farm belt, of course. The but that's why the Chinese have picked it. That's why sorghum is having its fifteen minutes of fame right now. Is because they look over these products that the U.S. sends to China and they say which ones you know reveal a, re a vulnerability on the part of the U.S. So products which 
um, go heavily to China that don't, for example, have a big domestic market in the U.S. And therefore, they're especially vulnerable to seeing trade barriers. And they are uh, flexing their muscles. And the electric car situation, uh, previously car automakers had to partner with a Chinese partner if they wanted to get in the market. Now they're saying electric cars, come on in. Yeah. Well, this is an instance of, you know, be careful what you ask for. You might actually get it. So the Trump administration, one of the major complaints about the way China has been treating foreign investors and especially, say, auto companies, has been they have been required to partner with with domestic partners in China. This has been seen as a vehicle, so to speak, for taking their intellectual product, um, intellectual property. And so now the Chinese are saying, all right, that's your complaint. Here you go. Bring in Tesla. Bring in your electric cars. The Chinese, of course, have another motive for that, which is they recognize that a country can benefit from imports. They have severe pollution problems. And so they're very eager to move in the direction of electric car production anyways. It looks like the Chinese are doing a carrot and stick approach at the same time and seeing what they get. If if the Trump administration settles for the electric car opening and declares victory, um, that's that's a good thing. Yes, and you had a speech, uh, I think it was a week ago, with Xi Jinping, which the Chinese have said this was not trying to mollify the U.S., and yet he sort of restated a number of things that the Chinese were doing, essentially a bit of an olive branch, something that the administration could grab onto should it so choose. I think the Chinese are a little bit confused about what exactly the U.S. wants, and they are grasping around a bit. I got to admit, I found the article in the New York Times I read about that listed off who they're talking to to discuss what's going on with U.S. trade policy. The vice president came over and met with, in recent weeks, Tim Geithner, Henry Paulson, Lawrence Summers, all former trade uh, treasury secretaries, uh, Bob Zelik, the former trade rep, William Cohen, the former defense secretary and senator. They met with uh, the head of Apple, J.P. Morgan. Cisco, Blackstone Group, and Goldman Sachs. And the thing they ask is, who do we talk to? Uh, we don't see a stable structure. <laughs> yeah, they, they figure that there's got to be some method to all this. And if they ask enough people, they'll finally <laughs> be able to figure it out. Well, I think the Chinese were fairly enthused when Donald Trump was elected president. They thought, here's a guy who can cut a deal. And so they thought they understood this. He wasn't going to complain to them about human rights. And so they were ready to do a deal. And in fact, they did deals during his first year. Um, and then I think they were somewhat taken aback when – he then started aggressively going after them on other things. And if you look at it from a Chinese perspective, what is the U.S. priority? What is it that the U.S. really wants? Is it a balanced bilateral trade deficit? Is it intellectual property rights? Is it currency? Um, which of the – is it the capacity of their steel industry? Which of these things is, is what the U.S. is really pushing for? Because at different moments, each of those has had the limelight. I'm talking with Phil Levy. He's a senior fellow in the global economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and we're going over some of the Trump administration's uh, trade issues. Let's swing over to NAFTA. Um, NAFTA has an interesting connection in a way with um, what's going on with Japan and the other TPP partners. Uh, what if you're Mexico and uh, – in Canada, and you're sitting there negotiating with the U.S., and the U.S. is saying, we're going to enter the TPP. How does that uh, affect your NAFTA negotiations? You start packing up your bags, grab your briefcase, and <laughs> say, good, I don't need to worry about this anymore. <laughs> no, I mean, they, they can't actually do that because they're still worried about President Trump 
killing NAFTA, which he repeatedly says he would like to do. But you're quite right. Canada and Mexico were two of – and remain two of the initially 12 countries in the TPP. And so if the US says they want back in and it actually were going to get back in, that would cover a lot of what they wanted to do. So it would sort of obviate why are you then doing all these other talks with the Trump administration? I think most of what they've been doing in NAFTA anyways is – like the Japanese trying to f- and the Chinese trying to figure out what the U.S. actually wants and what it is they can live with and avoid disaster. So I think it, it, but it has to sort of make them scratch their heads a bit and wonder what they're doing there. One of the issues that has been interesting to follow is the one about cars and and cars in NAFTA. You have to have a certain percentage of auto parts from the United States in this case. And it's and explain what's been going on there. Yeah, so this is something a little bit obscure called rules of origin. And so, what a free trade agreement like NAFTA says is, if you are a North American car, you can move across the border between the U.S. the borders between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico without paying any tariffs. It begs the question, what is a North American car? So in the original NAFTA, they had a definition. It was something like sixty-two and a half percent of the parts had to originate in North America. The Trump administration came in with a radically different proposal. I think it initially said 85 percent North America, but at least 50 percent of those had to be made in the U.S., which was a real departure. Um, They saw this as a way to sort of move production into the U.S. The U.S. auto industry was very distinctly unenthused about this. They had made investments all over the place. That was not how they had structured their production. So they saw this as costly. So you had a proposal – which only had maybe a handful of people who thought it was a good idea and they all worked directly for President Trump. The U.S. recently gave on this issue and went down from 85 to 75, but that still leaves a big gap. Yeah, it's not entirely clear how much they gave. They they did some of that. At one point, they were talking about linking this to a minimum wage of $15 an hour, which would certainly be problematic for Mexico. So they're gradually working their way back both to where Canada and Mexico might be, but also where the U.S. auto industry might be. So if, if you're um, <laughs> uh, doing this deal and you've got um, – you run down in the issue of uh, Forbes today that um, we might run out of time to even get NAFTA done and into Congress and Mexico's got political issues. There's There's a – window that they've got to work with and they're not really getting there. Yeah. What I actually argue is I think the window may already have closed and they're just not aware of it. The the problem is that a trade deal is not like, say, a real estate deal that you might cut in – in, in the New York City area. It's it's nothing where you have, you know, a big weekend at a hotel and you sort of then sign everything at the end. You're working with the U.S. Congress. Our constitution gives Congress the power to regulate trade. Congress has delegated that somewhat to the president through something called Trade Promotion Authority. But with that delegation came a bunch of responsibilities and they set out a bunch of timelines for what an administration has to do. As just one example of that, when the administration decides that it wants to sign whatever they come up with, it can't just do that the next day. It has to give 90 days notice. 60 days before it signs, it has to release the text to everyone. After the signing, there's something like 105 days for the U.S. International Trade Commission to study the matter. So there are all of these steps that must be taken. If you sort of play those out and everything goes really, really well, you're talking about sometime in early or or even very late December 
when they would even put it before Congress. And that's not usually Congress's most productive time. Very interesting. And the Mexican elections are July 1st. They are. And, and you, you could get somebody different in there. <laughs> yeah, and that's a serious threat. I mean, a lot of we have not exactly been uh, crafting our political statements emanating from the White House in such a way as to sort of tilt the Mexican elections in our favor. Um, that uh, one of the leading candidates is has traditionally been fairly anti-American. Um, and the Mexicans had said from early on, we had better not be doing NAFTA negotiations once we get into 2018. You will note that we are in April of 2018 and we are still doing NAFTA negotiations and planning to keep going. This may have a serious long-run cost. Very interesting. Phil Levy is Senior Fellow on the Global Economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Thanks a lot for joining us and trying to sort out the trade issues all over the planet. My pleasure. Good to be with you. It's been five years since the Rana Plaza disaster. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about ongoing efforts to improve conditions in the garment industry. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's been five years since the Rana Plaza disaster. 1,100 garment workers were killed in Bangladesh. Since then, there's been ongoing efforts to improve conditions in the garment industry. There is every year Fashion Revolution Week, an annual global initiative to remember the Rana Plaza victims and do something about what's going on in the garment industry. We're going to talk about what's going on here in Chicago with me is Nazreen Sheikh. She uh, worked as a child laborer in a sweatshop in Nepal, then went on to open a fair trade company in Kathmandu at the age of 16. And it's great to see you again. We've met before and had you on the program. Thank you so much for bringing me here. And also with us is Father Andrew O'Connor. He is a New York-based Catholic priest, and he founded Goods of Conscience. It's a social enterprise that partners with Guatemalan women uh, and textile weavers. Thanks for joining us, Father O'Connor. Thank you for having me. And here in the studio is Catherine Bissell-Cordova, Executive Director of Chicago Fair Trade, the umbrella organization of fair trade groups in Chicago. Great to see you, Catherine. Explain to us about uh, Fashion Revolution Week. Sure. Um, it, well, you did a good job introducing it, but you're right. So every year in, I believe it's 90 countries now, people join together to commemorate the 1,134 lives lost in Bangladesh um, with that completely preventable um, garment uh, building collapse. And also to highlight, though, uh, that there are many alternatives. Uh, the actual dates of Fashion Revolution Week are, are the 23rd of April to the 29th, but we had the chant, the wonderful opportunity to have Nazarene Sheik back here this week. And so we are doing events this week to kick off Fashion Revolution. So... We have a series of events starting tonight with Nazreen at the Oak Park Library at 7 o'clock in the Veterans Room, and that is free and open to all. Um, we also have, she'll be Thursday at St. Mary's in Evanston at the YMCA Children's Theater, which uh, 
of St. Mary's at 1420 Maple in Evanston at 7 o'clock. And then Friday, a whole series of events that Father O'Connor is flying in for and joining us that we're Chicago Fair Trade is co-hosting with DePaul, uh, 4 to 8.30, a whole series of events at DePaul. Nazreen, great to see you. And how far do you think things have come in the last five years since the Rana Plaza disaster? Do you see improvements in ethical commerce? Yes, of course. I see that change. Um, Five years ago, I did not even know what is fashion revolution. Even like just two years back, I did not even know what it was, fashion revolution, even though like Nepal and Bangladesh is so close, you know, and we, I didn't have that awareness. And uh, in 2016, uh, our organization got invited by fashion revolution and they asked us that, would you like to be part of that? And I was like, what is it? And they said like, you know, it's all the story about Rana Plaza. And it made me really sad because I feel like, why change happen after like taking so many people's life? Why don't we believe our inner side and change should happen through connecting, not losing 1136 people's life, you know? And <clears throat> I want to change that. I want people to connect with deeper level and not let that type of terrible tragedy happen again and let's change that you know so fashion revolution is literally a reminder for more and more people to be aware of what you do what you drink what you eat what you wear it affects other people's life and if you don't connect it will literally take so many other families life so many other children life so i want people to connect Father Andrew O'Connor, I wanted to get your opinion about how far how far we've come since in the last five years. I think there's certain signs of the progress are the use of the word sustainable uh, had meant, uh, you know, the, uh, how did it affect the environment. But it's gained what, what fair trade uh, has indicated, that there's a, a conscionable uh, treatment of those who make garments and who work in the garment industry. So sustainability seems to uh, uh, be a, a, a watchword in the fashion world, um, in particular luxury fashion, that uh, that indicates that there is uh, just uh, wages paid um, and uh, just conditions being employed. So. Tell us about Goods of Conscience, because you are moving in a, a pretty high-fashion uh, place with these Guatemalan uh, textile weavers. You, it's um, – I saw yes, it's on your right. website, it's, and, and um, you've got I, a kind of swanky My philosophy from the beginning was uh, uh, inspired by a, uh, a Catholic priest from Oklahoma who was killed in Guatemala in 1981, Father Stan Rother. And uh, so he started the project of, uh, of weaving the cloth and trying to uh, benefit the Mayans who were victims of the, um, uh, the war, that it, the civil war that had raged there from the 1950s. Um, so, but I took the, 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 the tack of trying to bring the production up here to New York. And uh, I feel that... Uh, we have to make it here, and it's also a, um, better to consume uh, closer to where people people live, and they can be f- tailored uh, to their li- to their needs. Do you as get- well as I think it uh, it responds better to fashion 
Uh, New York is the fashion capital of the world. Do you get so the- it's called Goods of Conscience <laughs> because it's based on the uh, four teachings of the Catholic uh, Catholic social teaching, as well as just simply a play on the words in the garment industry for goods. Goods refers to uh, fabric, and uh, my line of clothing really focuses on the fabric that's that's being used, and I call it social fabric. Uh, do you get the feeling like the capital of the fashion world, New York, is kind of getting the message? There, uh, There's an awful lot of firms there. Do they start walking the walk a little bit? Um, I didn't hear the beginning of your question. Uh, do, the, do the firms in New York, the big fashion firms, do they um, talk the talk and walk the walk that, that you think is, is got to happen for change? Um, I'm just coming back from a conference that was uh, sponsored both by uh, University of Hertfordshire and Yale uh, that did some research on this uh, subject. You know, they they doubt that uh, Louis Vuitton, for instance, is uh, is really as sustainable as they claim to be. Uh, so I think the uh, the firms themselves, you know, it, it's hard for them to regear to. Um, uh, to find different types of uh, or origins of or different types of chains of production that uh, ref- that are indeed uh, demonstrably sustainable, so I think they've you know they, they've got to make a profit. Uh, so uh, that that's going to be a longer process, I think, from what I know of their own production standards and where their factories are. Catherine Bissell Cordova, uh, what, what do you think about uh, the, the long run of what is happening in the fashion industry? Well, I think change is slow, <laughs> um, but and and we're really in the business of of get of consumer education and activation, and so I do feel um, as more people learn about this. Consumers learn about this, um, and a lot have since the Rana Plaza tragedy. That is, you know, we, we were trying to make something good come out of such a horrible tragedy, but the fact is it did shine a light on this. The movie The True Cost, Andrew Morgan, who made that movie, was uh, we were uh, he was on BEZ when that came through Chicago in 2015. That is available for streaming. I'm meeting more and more young people, high school, college age, just out of college, that see that movie, and they say that they will not buy anything from a fast fashion store anymore. Um, now, we just need to keep spreading that word a lot. And I mean, the thing why I'm such a believer in in fair trade is that consumer demand really can change industries if enough consumers are demanding it. So, um, it, but it's a slow process. But I do, you do see more and more kind of major retailers getting into it. Um, I think it was three or four years ago, Patagonia, it was 2014, I, I recently met at a conference um, Helena Barber of Patagonia, who, you know, and Patagonia is legendary in their commitment to um, environmental sustainability. And I'm really glad, Father O'Connor, you mentioned that because I, I, that used to drive me crazy that sustainability, it was all about the fabric, but they didn't talk about the worker piece. And that mm-hmm. is, I think, more being taken into account now. But, you know, she went and said that she saw the factories in, in, uh, Sri Lanka and was, well, it was better than your average sweatshop factory. She was still shocked kind of at, at the way they were being produced. And they have very much changed the way that they produce now. And they now have a fair trade certified factory. They 
three years ago launched their fair trade certified products and they had I think 30 they have a very large line they have a thousand pieces every line that they come out with and now they're at 500 of their pieces are fair trade um, Athleta owned by the Gap now has is working with a fair trade factory in India and they have some fair trade activewear so I do think um, and you know and there's debate on different among fair trade folks what you know what are the standards all that but the fact that major retailers are really looking to this and starting to get into it, I think is going to create some, you know, we're hoping we'll create a sea change in, in the long run. Nazreen, what do you see when you go and talk to young people around the country? Uh, you've been talking at, in front of lots of groups and you meet young people like you're going to at DePaul University on, on Friday afternoon. Uh, what are they charged up about? Um, most of the time, they just don't know what happens behind the scene, uh, like in the factory and how the living condition is for the workers. So when I share my story and the living condition that I have lived when I was a victim of sweatshop and child labor, all they do is like they're shocked. They were like, oh, my God, we never we just did not know about that. We did not know that three dollar T-shirts is actually someone suffering. And I'm wearing that suffering. And as soon they realize that they will never, ever support that. And I know that those are the young generation is becoming more powerful for this world to actually force these big corporations and the CEOs to initiate the global change. And we need to do that. And these young leaders hold that power. So what I feel really good, uh, me being in America and going to all these colleges and universities and conference is bringing those missing link, which I feel is they have been not shared for such a long time. And right now it's getting more and more people becoming aware because once people are aware, they will not participate in that suffering. What was going on in Nepal? We've got just a couple minutes left, but could you explain your situation and how you got out of it? Yes. Um, so uh, in 2006, uh, one of the agent made me work for almost a month, and then he took my money and got disappeared. And, you know, sometimes I feel like in life something really hate, like something really devastating happens in life to bring a big catalyst change. And that is exactly what happened to me. I met completely random street person, and I asked him, Uncle, please, can you teach me? And this person, for the last 10 years, he had been teaching me. And through his education, I was able to go back to my skills and I started to take these disadvantaged women, and we built our own learning center. I did everything opposite, which I did not had in my sweatshop. I have, we, now we have a biogas, we have a, like, solar power. Like, we do everything, like, you know, according to the fair trade principles. We follow 10 principles of fair trade. And our women life they only take six months to change their whole life and I feel like instead of me contributing into suffering I can literally contribute into changing the world you know and changing the world is we all can grow together as a collective consciousness 
Nazarene Sheikh worked as a child laborer in a sweatshop in Nepal, then went on to open a fair trade company. And what's the name of it? Where can people see the um, the goods? Yes, uh, people can visit at local women's handicrafts, lwhnepal.com. That is where you can read all the women's story. And I'm also having a lockwarm.org. That is where I'm bringing all these powerful women together to let's change the world because this is the time to change it. Father <laughs> Andrew O'Connor is a New York-based Catholic priest. He helped found Goods of Conscience, a social enterprise that partners with women uh, textile weavers in Guatemala. Thanks very much for joining us. And Catherine Bissell-Cordova is the executive director of Chicago Fair Trade. Thank you for joining us. Good luck on Fashion Revolution. People can get more information about uh, the DePaul events on Friday afternoon on the Chicago Fair Trade website. Yeah, of all three events that I mentioned, yes. Okay, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Catherine, and thank you, everybody. Coming up after the break, we'll talk more trade and find out about rug weavers in Pakistan. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Let's continue talking about ethical commerce. There is such a thing as an ethically made rug. Bunyad Rugs employs over 850 artisan families in 150 villages in Pakistan. Yusuf Chaman is the director of Bunyad Rugs. He's a native of Lahore, Pakistan. It's great to see you. We talked 10 years ago, I think, in the program. Thank you for having us back. And you're here with your wife, the Director of Operations at Bunyad, Jeannie Leister. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. You come every year and you come to 10,000 Villages and you do a fair trade rug event. The event is on Thursday. Tell us a little about your organization and where it came from that your dad started it. So this program was started back in the 60s with only 10 families. And the intent was to make sure that artisans have fair and uh, direct income. So there's no middle layers involved. And artisans get the fair incomes to support the basic needs of their family from education to living conditions to be able to get a fair wage. And then artisan wants to go back and spend another six months to a year to make the next beautiful rug because it takes a long time to make one rug possible. And when you don't receive a fair income for the work, next thing happens, you start thinking either cut quality, cut cost that way, or maybe even give up sometime down the road. And that's what's been happening over the decades. So that's why this program started with 10 families. And the whole idea is that artisan receives a fair income so they can continue this time-honored tradition that has been in their families for centuries. To give you an idea, my family village is only 1,000 years old, when I say (laughs) only, because it is considered a new village in that part of the world. Oh, no kidding. So exactly where in Pakistan is this? Uh, This is in the northeast of Pakistan very close to the Kashmir region and uh, pretty much 95 or even higher percentage of that village population will be rug makers. And everybody knew exactly where everybody came from. I remember a day having a flat tire coming back from the village along not too far from the village and the first thing somebody asked me who wants to help me uh, whose uh, grandson are you? And that was an odd question in some way because I was hoping he'll say what's your name? What can I help you? 
Well, because for him to know my grandfather meant that he knows everything about me. So the history is very important to people, and that history also relates to these rugs as well. These are rugs that have been passed down from one generation to the next. So people don't want to lose this tradition. And so having a program like this guarantees that artisans continue to make rugs from their own homes, get to create one-of-a-kind piece, and receive a fair income in return. So that's what this program is about, making sure that artisans have a guaranteed fair wage and both men and women have equal opportunity. So artisans are treated with respect because they get to choose their design, they get to choose their colors, they get to make the size of rug they want to make. I'll tell you first from my personal experience, walking into my cousin's house, two of my cousins making a usually always made six by nine rug. This time they were making a five by eight. And I said, well, you guys never make five by eight. Well, we want to finish a 5 by 8 because the village festival, which comes after the harvest, is going to be in this month. So we factor that if we make a 5 by 8 the rug will be finished. And then the community gathering, the family gathering happens after that. So we don't want to be involved with the rug, so we want to have a rug finished. So the life they live factors into what kind of rugs they make. And unfortunately, when artisans don't have the fair opportunity, either you move to a factory, workshop settings, where you don't get to choose what you want to create. You make what you're told. I'm talking with Yusuf Chaman, director of Bunyad Rugs. He's a native of Lahore, Pakistan. And Jeannie Leister, his wife, is here. She is director of operations. I imagine it's a really cool thing to know people who made that rug. It's not like a factory thing. You get to meet people and figure out who they are and what they're kind of about by their rugs. I think one of my favorite times was uh, visiting a village and going in and sitting with three sisters who were knotting a rug together. The oldest sister's name was Rafia. And as she was coming up for a break time, her husband came in with their young eight-month-old and was bringing the child in for a little bit of visitation time. And I looked at her and said, wow, this is a big switch. I don't see many times where the men have full care of the children here in the village. And she said, well, working with Bunyad, I'm able with my sisters to earn a really, really great wage here in my home community. So my husband has realized that instead of him having to go off for miles and miles and only come home every once a month or once every two months to visit the family, that it's a better support that he takes over those roles. And I work on the loom. That has stuck with me uh, an awful lot because to have the loom located inside her village home meant that not only could employment stay there, but she could work with her family to increase the development of her home village. What has changed about the rugs in recent years? I imagine that as you get to be a larger organization, and, and you've certainly got a lot of variety, but there's also natural dyes that are coming in? Yeah, our focus uh, has been working in the villages and uh, giving our artisans the opportunity to create the rugs the way they have created for centuries. And that also meant using natural dyes, making rugs with the natural dyes. So more than 50% of the rugs now are being produced with natural dyes. And unfortunately, with time, sometimes things get put on the back burner because something is cost effective. And that's what happened with the rugs too. You know, commercial dyes came into play because they were cost effective. And as a matter of fact, uh, artisans wanted to go back 100% natural dyes. 
but some type of rugs you need 20 colors, and then the cost ends up being too much. So hence, they stick with the little over 50% natural dye rugs. But the goal is that you source everything from your own village, your community. For example, artisans use onions every day for cooking. Well, you save those onion peels. You have pomegranates that grow in a courtyard. I walked in, I don't know how many family homes, and usually there's like two or three pomegranate trees. And if you go there between July and August, those pomegranate trees could have about two or 300 pomegranates on it. So this is the fruit that you enjoy. But then you save the peels and make a dye out of it. And that's true for walnut shells. That's true for onion shells or orange peels. These are all things that artisans or people grow in their own villages. So what that does for artisan is that you can source everything locally. And that also means it makes their rugs unique because for a long time, natural dye has been fading away. And that tradition is coming back and it has come back full swing. You've got a big tray with about 20 different jars on it with all these things that you were just ticking off. And then there's saffron and green tea and um, black tea, rock salt. These are all things that people are making dye out of. So, yeah. So these are some of the ingredients. I mean, if you go back, usually people have piles of the dyes. I walked into these rooms. They have sacks of walnut shells, onion shells. I mean... To give you an idea, if an artisan chooses to make a natural dye from onion shell, if you start saving onion peels in a typical household cooking, you'll have enough to dye two to four pounds of wool at the end of the year. So they have to save a lot of onion shells. Fortunately, in that part of the world, onion is a main ingredient for cooking. So you can source a lot of uh, onion shells there. And the natural dye stick as good as other dyes? They are permanent dyes, even though they're natural dyes. We actually test them when the rug gets washed to make sure that you know it doesn't fade or run or anything. So you can spill tea, coffee, juice, wine, or spaghetti sauce, any food, and not have to worry about it, even down to a stain that sits there for a few months, and then you can remove that stain. And these are things we test on ourselves and have tried ourselves. So these are permanent dyes, even when they're not commercial dye, they're natural dyes. I'm talking with Yusuf Chaman and Jeannie Leister. They are with Bunyad Rugs, and they're here for the 10,000 Villages Fair Trade Rug Event. It starts on Thursday and runs through Monday the 23rd. Jeannie, tell me about your rug events, because you've got four 10,000 village places where you sell all the time, Correct. but then you hit the road. <laughs> <laughs> we are have a staff of 10 that we hit the road, and we help to take fair trade rugs to various communities across uh, North America. This year, we have 38 different rug events in the U.S., and we have around 15 in Canada. So we have a staff that gets to tell the fair trade story, gets to wow out folks with the fact that there's over 7.7 million hand-tied knots in some of our larger carpets. Yeah, they're quite intense and also quite durable. I think the part that so many of our staff enjoy is trying to figure out how to connect our artisans in Pakistan and our consumers here in North America. The biggest thing we usually hear from our customers are, when my kids are older. 
or when my pet is dead, then I'll be able to look at one of these rugs. And we usually love to tell them our own personal stories of, no, really, these are the types of rugs that you can drop your red wine, your spaghetti sauce, your turmeric, your potatoes, and, you know, Rover can do whatever Rover should or should not do do on a a carpet. (laughs) They do do a lot. And soap and water will take care of everything because when it is a fairly traded rug, that means the quality materials have been put into it. It seems like something that's really nice, though. You, uh, you don't want to have the dog or something. We always joke because for the first year and a half of our son's life, he went to work with us. And every day, his diaper got changed on our pile of 8 by 10 carpets. And he sort of is now at age 7 a little mortified to hear that. But we also did it because we wanted folks to realize these are pieces that live with you and live through the generations with you. How do you compete against other commercially made oriental rugs? I mean, your rugs are, uh, you know, no, nobody's going to out beautiful them, I guess, but the um, they must be, uh, m- there's stores that are devoted to it, there's shops on the corner. Uh. Obviously, um, there's many rugs out there in the marketplace. Um, the difference is a lot of time rugs are being designed with the market input, which is not a bad thing. But when it goes into, you know, workshops or factory production, that means artisan does not have a say in it. And so what that means over time, they lose their ability to create their own rugs because an artisan takes 15, 20 years before they can create their own one-of-a-kind piece. That's the kind of training you need before you, you're able to create your own designs and colors wow. and design. And you, you have training centers for people to get involved in the market. So the whole idea is giving artisans the skill level that where rug is made and it gets passed down from one generation to the next. When there's artisans who otherwise don't have opportunity, for example, in the case of this community that we start working with a few years back, a small community of 5,000 homes up in the mountains where there was earthquake and people have been asking for jobs. I met with a group of uh, 38 women. And uh, they said, we used to work with this organization before, and they walked away and never came back because the tourist market dried up. So now we're looking for some income for our families. So they've been asking for an opportunity, and we worked with them to set up looms. And it was designed strictly to work with the women. And the best part happened within two or three years. The husbands or fathers were saying, well, can they train us now? And that's what's going on right now. So the amazing empowerment that takes place beyond the economics of it and what that means for a role of a woman or a child or a daughter who has been in school and now is also giving economic opportunity to their own family members. What does bunyad mean? Bunyad is a word that we're not familiar with. So bunyad means foundation. It's a word that describes that what the organization does. It builds strong foundations through fair trade. When artisans receive a fair price, that could mean 10%, 20% more. And it allows artisans to provide education for their children, allow them to live in their own villages, allows them to improve the quality of their life. And we've seen schools have been built because of that. We've seen roads have changed. I mean, there's a story after story from individual to the whole village. Now, you're having an event on Thursday night where you talk about loom to living room. Explain what goes on there, Jeannie. 
So it will be a fun evening. Folks will be able to learn more about how the rugs are knotted from dyeing the wool to tying the fringes. They'll be able to hear and ask questions about how to care for rugs, how to place them in their rooms, and get to hear stories uh, of artisans behind these carpets. I think as a woman, um, Yusuf and I started working together back in 1994. Um, We never intended on... uh, tying the knot, no pun intended. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we did because, well, not only because we liked each other, but also because we found we had a common passion for seeing the empowerment, especially of women. One of the things that will come out really strong in the seminar on Thursday night is how many women are behind these carpets making these rugs and really making a totally new life for their community. And there's going to be music, and it sounds like it'll be fun. Exactly. And then the whole shebang continues through Monday the 23rd, and this is at the 10,000 Villages store in Evanston, where I bet you've got lots of old friends by this time. You've been coming for quite a while. We do, and we have a pool of volunteers that will help us unload and load back up. This is their 14th annual event, and they're really looking forward to it. So are we. Can you foresee a time when you won't be on the road with the rugs anymore? <laughs> is, that, is that a forever thing? Because you, you know, on the Internet, people can get this stuff. Or you can look at the whole catalog in the Internet, right? Rugs are always very much an experience. When you purchase, you have to see it. You have to get to know the history, an experience where you get to touch and feel the rug. So for now, at this point, I think we'll be traveling for a few years. Yusuf Chaman is the director of Bunyad Rugs. Jeannie Leister is the director of operations for Bunyad. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Great Thank to you see for you. having us. <laughs> Earth Day this year falls on a Sunday, and so we can't do our annual Earth Day quiz on Earth Day like we usually do. We're going to do it tomorrow. So we'll have the annual Earth Day quiz tomorrow. There will be sound effects. There will be cheering. There will be booing and hissing. Winners will get WBEZ socks from the uh, WBEZ store that we've got up uh, running this week. So we'll have a good time tomorrow with the annual Earth Day quiz. Howard Lerner from the Environmental Law Policy Center will be be here. Kim Wasserman from the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization will be here as well, and we'll quiz you on things like Scott Pruitt tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. Daniel Musisi curated our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.